Welcome to The Draft Board, where hosts David Song and Tyson Workington tackle the topics that you want to hear. From the rink, to the turf, to the court, anything and everything, this is The Draft Board. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome again to another edition of The Draft Board, Season 2, Episode 3. I'm David, he's Tyson. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing real good, David. I'm glad to be here and making another podcast with you today. Yeah, and you know what? I, I I have to be a little bit honest uh, with the listeners in that this was not the best day for me, but you know, going through uh, some personal things. But but the one thing about sports is that it, it, it often has been able to distract me and give me something positive to focus on, and I'm glad I'm able to do that with you tonight, partner. Yeah, I'm glad. You know, sports is always something fun and something good to talk about, especially when life is difficult and hard but you know i'm glad that sports can be kind of a reprieve at times but also be a really uh, impactful way to have a, a good community around you and yeah i'm thankful that we get to do this as well now speaking of feeling good i have a feel-good story for us that hits particularly close to home for me in a good way because uh, those of you who know me know that i am in indianapolis studying sports journalism and i'll be going back in about mid-january to continue to do that and also to work part-time for the athletics department there, which I'm quite excited for. But one of my favorite parts about being there has been becoming friends with several of the girls on the IUPUI Jaguars women's basketball team. And I met many of these ladies through Christian life groups and, and, and worship events. And, you know, I'm pleased to call them, I'm pleased to call them friends. Uh, you know what, Rachel McLemore, Rachel Kent, Morgan Allen, <laughs> Allie Berg, if any of you end up hearing this uh, or listening to this episode, shout out to you guys. Uh, you guys are great, and I really appreciate y'all. I also really appreciate the fact that y'all, as well as the rest of your teammates, you ready for this, Tyson? So IUPUI has never been a nationally ranked basketball team right in america for for context for those who don't know they play in the horizon league which is what we call a mid-major league in ncaa division one and what that means is that while they still play in the largest general category or the most competitive rather not the largest but the most competitive general category of u.s college sports they are considered a mid-tier program in a mid-tier conference, which is actually a big step down from what we call the Power Five conferences, Big Ten, SEC, and a lot of other acronyms that would most likely confuse people right. who do not follow American college sports. And it just so happens that today, or at least today as in the day we're recording this, this is a Tuesday the... Tyson, what's the what, what's the day today? I'm blanking. Is today, it... it's uh, Tuesday the 21st. Tuesday the 21st. They played the Iowa Hawkeyes. Ah, that's a Big Ten school. It's a Big Ten school. Not only is it a Big Ten school, it is a big time school in the Big Ten, currently ranked number 15 in the nation. IUPUI, like I said, has never been ranked. Now, IUPUI went in, I'm sorry, with a a 4-4 four and four overall record, including two unfortunate COVID forfeits oh. that really kind of set them back in terms of the Horizon League standings. Iowa, I believe, is about... Uh, Pardon me, six and two going into this into this competition. They had were just starting their Big Ten conference schedule. What does that translate to for all the laymen listening out there? Uh, IUPUI, as much as I love my friends on the team, they they were the clear underdogs in this game. <laughs> Iowa's a big deal. They were the more highly ranked team, and they were definitely the favorite. And I was watching the this game on because it was only available on Big Ten Network Plus, which I had to pay $15 for a month of. But hey, it's my friend, so it was worth it. Worth it. So they didn't uh, my, They didn't get off to a particularly good start, and they ended the second half down double digits. I believe it was about down 15 points. And you know, Caitlin Clark, by the way, who is the Iowa Hawkeyes' best player, really made her mark on this game, I think scoring 13 points and about six or seven rebounds in the first half and uh she she's a great player and 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 the hawkeyes you know what they were rolling and uh the jaguars weren't making nearly enough shots to to keep pace and i was sitting there being like you know what i know that this was kind of 
uh, an underdog proposition. And but but I do hope that the Jaguars make it interesting. Mm-hmm. And guess what, Tyson? By the fourth quarter, mm-hmm. my friends uh, and their teammates had cut an 18-point lead to four. Oh wow. Yeah, and so at that point, as you can imagine, I was leaning forward in my seat quite a bit more than I was in the first you, half. You were very interested. I was very interested, and I uh, went from sort of resignation to very much emotional investment in this game. And man, the final the final sequence was so insane that... Um, so, so our starting center, Macy Williams, really started breaking free in the second half. She finished with 19 points despite scoring only four in the first half. She was a big part of our comeback. Uh, my friend Rachel McLemore, whom I met in a, in a life group last year in 2020, she had 19 points, uh, 19 points that were really important as well. But first of all, I want to give a shout out to my friend Rachel so that she was playing man-to-man defense on Caitlin Clark for most, if not all, of the game. Caitlin Clark, for those of you who don't know, was the Big Ten Freshman of the Year last year. She was named the Athletic, WBCA, and USBWA Tamika Catchings Co-Freshman of the Year. I think that was alongside Paige Beckers, who a lot of people know about. And... Those same three organizations, uh, the the Athletic, WBCA, and the U.S. Basketball Writers Association, first team All-America oh. last year. And she is so good that last year when Iowa met UConn in the NCAA tournament, a.k.a. March Madness, that game was billed by many media outlets as Paige Beckers versus Caitlin Clark. Mm. Paige Beckers is one of the best players in women's ball right now, and the fact that Clark is compared to her shows you how highly regarded Caitlin Clark is. Yeah. And my friend Rachel McLemore, you know what? I, I messaged you, I DM'd you already, gave you a shout-out for this, but now I'm going to do it again a bit more publicly. My friend Rachel McLemore went down and went out there and locked down Caitlin Clark in the entire second half. Wow. That's impressive. Very, very much so. I, I, I feel like I may have to uh, bow down or like you know kiss her ring like the Pope does uh, <laughs> next time I see her on campus. I'm joking, of course, but you know phenomenal two-way effort by by her over the course of this game, and it kind of got to a point where I think with less than a minute left to go in the game, our starting point guard Destiny Perkins was at the free throw line. By the way, this is now a two-point lead, four-point lead down to two-point lead, two free throws to tie the game, and she. She misses a first free throw, oh. but she hits a second one, so we're now we're within one. And I was just sitting there being like, man, I hope she hits the second one, too. Or, no, or rather, I was thinking, I hope that this one point doesn't come back to bite us. Yeah. And uh, you know what? With seconds left to go in the game, Rachel McLemore drives the net, gets fouled, two free throws coming up. And this time, two free throws can take the lead for the Jaguars, their first lead of the game with eight seconds on the clock. How crazy is that? Crazy. Absolutely yeah. crazy. And so Rachel uh, steps up to the line, takes a deep breath before each shot. Mm. Net, net. No. Not even rim. Just in and in. And we are up by one with eight seconds left on the clock. Iowa calls their last time out. They inbounded in our half. And guess what? We foul them. But also, guess what? We had a foul to give somehow this late in the game. And so <laughs> Iowa had to inbound it again with four seconds left on the clock. And I was thinking, okay, we just have to defend for four seconds. We can do this, right? And it turns out uh, one of Iowa's players, I, unfortunately her name eludes me, but she had had a pretty good game over the course of the game. And she gets a jump shot from about the free throw line and leaves it short on the front iron. Oh. We grab the rebound, and it is... Let's go. Let's go, yeah. But, 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 but here's some context for you folks. Not only did the IUPUI uh, Lady Jags upset the Iowa Hawkeyes, not only did they erase an 18-point deficit, outscoring a nationally ranked team 27-11 to in the fourth quarter... Wow. This is IUPUI's first ever program win in in history. They have never beaten a nationally ranked team oh, in wow. program history is what I meant to say until today. This is also their first win over any Big Ten school since December 21st, 2016, when they beat Purdue mm. by five points. So 
that fifteen dollars I spent well worth it. Well worth it. I literally <laughs> spent fifteen dollars to watch History in the Making for for this program that I'm definitely emotionally invested in and that I'm looking forward to following over the course of the rest of the season. Oh, that's so great. And I know like the um, IUPUI Lady Jags, they made it to the NCAA tournament for the first time in their history, I believe. And it then was. COVID ruined everything. And then COVID shortened everything, and you know they weren't able to have a tournament, unfortunately, but. Um, you know, this is a great story for them, a little bit of redemption and being able to say, hey, we, we belong right there with some of the best programs in the school or in, in the States. And, you know, we deserve just as much national recognition they played Michigan a while ago, tooth and nail right to the bitter end as well. So, you know what? Good on the Lady Jags. We are going to keep supporting you, going to keep cheering you on. I might have to need to uh, get in on that Big Ten Network uh, package, see if I can get your uh, get your information. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's been it was it was a great win for those ladies, and I know that they are probably just thrilled about it. Yeah, and, and to your credit, when they played the I think currently number eleven ranked Michigan Wolverines again, another big time Big Ten school. Although they did lose, they pushed Michigan to overtime and lost by five. And so both of those games against Michigan and Iowa prove that this Horizon League team can hang with some of the higher echelon teams in the NCAA, in Division One, and... You know what? Like, I feel kind of weird, like calling them my girls, because <laughs> look, I mean, like, the, like, we're just friends, obviously. But, but nah, man, I'm just gonna have a little fun here. And you know what, Allie, Rachel, Rachel Morgan, you know, if if you're listening to this, as I as I hope you are at some point, uh, you know what? Just nothing but love. I'm just joking around, having <laughs> some some fun here. But informally, I, you know what, y'all are my girls, and I am uh, looking forward to the rest of this. Horizon League season as it continues. <laughs> that sounds great. You know what doesn't sound great, Tyson? What doesn't? The sound? NHL pulled out of the oh, Olympics today. I know the NHL. They just couldn't do it. They couldn't do the Olympics. No, and according to sources from ESPN, reported this. CBC Sports reported this. So far, the the at least the ostensible reason for the NHL going back back on sending their players to the Olympics is because of the current current swath of COVID, specifically the Omicron variant, mm. that is generating a lot of positive tests in the NHL, so much that the entire league today announced that they were going to pause operations through Christmas to see if they can take some of the heat off of this. And this is obviously far from ideal, but before we go any further, I, I just want to take a moment to, you know what, listen, like, the Olympics are controversial. NHL players going to the Olympics are controversial. There's a lot of nuts and bolts and serious arguments you could get into here. But can we just take a moment and kind of commiserate what would have been a really, really fun thing? Yeah, it's it's too bad that, you know, the NHL players don't get to go. And I know a lot of players were really looking forward to it. Like, I think, like, uh, Steven Stamkos, he came out and said, like, you know, if he gets the opportunity, he will absolutely go because it's something that he believes is really important for him, and that's something that he wants to he wants to do. And you know, I think that certain NHL players, um, with the approval of their owners, would be able to go alone uh, without kind of agreeing to uh, the NHLPA kind of statement and kind of just rejecting that and essentially they would be going alone. They would be riding solo without any protection. And if they got hurt, if they got sick, if anything happened to them, it would be on them. There wouldn't be any insurance. There wouldn't be any coverage. And ultimately I think they would be held liable. But Alex Ovechkin, he threatened in 2018 to go and play for Russia. He didn't choose to eventually, but yeah, like it's really sad that some of these players like, you know, Matthews, McDavid, some of these younger guys. Stamkos is an older guy who hasn't gotten to go. You Tavares. Know, Tavares. John Tavares as well. Who made the team in 2014 but then popped his knee or broke something, broke his leg mm-hmm. or something right before the tournament started. And he hasn't been able to play in international competition. It's it's really sad that we haven't seen a best-on-best tournament in a while. I think the last one was 2016 World Cup. Yes. But... Um, yeah, like it's it's sad that that, that ha- doesn't have to happen, but I think ultimately when you think of safety and everything with the Omicron variant, like lots of the players in the NHL, they've tested positive for COVID. Now, thankfully, because 
everybody in the league besides Tyler Bertuzzi is vaccinated. Besides Tyler Bertuzzi. He's literally the only one. That's that's hilarious, first of all. Second of all, you know, just a quick shout out to the fact that Duncan Keith really, really didn't want it for a while, <laughs> but finally acquiesced earlier this year. Finally, he did decide to go and get the vaccine, which is good. But uh, other than Tyler Bertuzzi, like everybody's vaccinated. So everybody who has tested positive, or at least the vast majority of people who have tested positive, have experienced either no symptoms or uh, just a little bit of flu-like symptoms. Like it hasn't been a very um, intense maneuver. It hasn't been very uh, strong or anything like that, at least that we know of. Um, but yeah, like I think it's really sad that we won't get to see a best on best tournament for another few years if the nhl chooses to go to the olympics in 2024 but i think just with everything with covid the omicron variant and with you know the state of the government of china i think right now it's a little bit too much risk and i think that ultimately especially because the nhl has canceled games and they need to reschedule a ton and now with this new pause I think that this makes the most sense. Yeah, and, you know, I'm going to be honest. I Everyone who knows me well knows I love the Olympic Games so, so much. Mm-hmm. It, it is the thing that got me into sports. I literally watch eight hour, six to eight hours of Olympics a day for the full two weeks every time that it's on. And I shudder to think how I'm going to do that in the future when I have a full-time job of some sort. <laughs> but that aside, you know... I'm also a person of Chinese descent, and although I am willingly extremely Americanized, everyone knows this, and there's, uh, like, frankly, I have no love lost for a lot of aspects of China, particularly the government, but, you know, looking back on China's government and the Communist Party and just the poor track record they've had with human rights violations and overall overall corruption and totalitarianism look this isn't a political podcast so i'm not going to get into the details and you know what there's plenty of other countries with plenty of other issues as well i don't discount that but there is a part of me that quite frankly would love to see team canada and team usa fully boycott these olympics and not send anybody and say look if individual athletes want to go you have the freedom to do that but we are not sending the teams the way we normally do and the reason i say that is just because first of all i think there's an argument to be made for the ioc not picking china to host these in the first place because yeah china is a world superpower but they just again like they have a poor track record with human rights violations with oppressing their own people and oppressing free speech and being this authoritarian regime that really that's that's not a secret Mm -hmm. and it hasn't been for quite some time and i remember i think scrolling through social media and seeing eric carlson the uh all-star Swedish defensemen say, look, if the possibility of a five-week quarantine is on the table, I wouldn't go. And I totally understand that point of thinking mm-hmm. because yeah, because chi- the Chinese government is putting in some incredibly severe restrictions on people who test positive. It's a four or five-week quarantine during which you're not even allowed to step into the hallway of the hotel that you're being put in. You have to, to my understanding, you have to pay for that out of pocket. And if any of our athletes, hockey or otherwise, were to get into that situation, and unfortunately we know that being being vaccinated doesn't eliminate the possibility of you testing positive or contracting COVID, who would be taking care of them, as you were kind of telling me before mm-hmm. the show? Like, who they, they'd be kind of out there in foreign territory under a questionable government, fending for themselves, locked in for five weeks under circumstances that no one would wish to experience. And you know, I have my I have my opinions on, on COVID, but I just think that. I just kind of wish that we were never put in this position in the first place and the IOC would have picked somebody else to host the Olympics. I think so too. And I'm critical of the IOC and and the Olympics and everything. I think that there's a level of corruption that exists within the IOC that I I don't approve of and I don't want. And I think that ultimately it's bad for the games if this continues to happen. But yeah, like these are professional athletes that we have to think about and if if one NHL player tests positive for COVID and 
and they have to get stuck in a quarantine hotel room for five weeks, I sincerely doubt that there's going to be a treadmill or a training machine in their hotel that they can use to train and help keep them in shape while, you know, being under quarantine in China. So if you get COVID, basically it's a six-week injury where you have to have a level of rehab in order to get up to the level of strength that is needed to come back because you won't be able to be training nearly as hard or nearly as effective while being in quarantine uh, in China. And ultimately, you know, it's it's not a it's not an ideal position really for anyone. Uh, and obviously, you kind of gotta you hope for the best and hope that. If you go, like, this doesn't happen and, and you won't have to go through any of this process and kind of just, you know, hope that nothing works out this way. But sometimes the worst case scenario does happen in real life. And at this point, I think that it, it, it's too much of a risk for players to kind of go through that, for teams to put their players in a position where, you know, they would be under that level of, Um, scrutiny or level of um, you know uh, quarantine and I think that man you know I I I know I wouldn't want to be that way and Alex Petrangelo who was previously named to Team Canada said out loud like hey listen I've got a family like being away from my kids would be absolutely devastating even if it was just for a couple of weeks like let alone a month so yeah it would be really hard for people for families and yeah for athletes as a whole i i think the quarantine is going to be really tough for those who do test positive in hindsight don't all hockey fans wish that the nhl would have gone in 2018 and not gone now yeah i mean in hindsight that's definitely true i was not in favor of the nhl going in 2018 and the reason why is because the IOC was trying to avoid paying the insurance bill if an NHL player got hurt. And that has not happened since the NHL has gone to the Olympics. So I don't know why uh, Rene Fasal, the IOC director, decided that the 2018 Olympics was his time to make that statement. I, I disagree with it profusely. But yeah, like it's unfortunate that the business side of sports with insurance and money and professional athletes and the NHLPA and the NHL all war, trying to work alongside the IOC, the Olympic Committee, it, it that was what got in the way of having a true best-on-best best Olympics in 2018, not COVID. And now here we are in a pandemic world where we're living with COVID, where we're living with this virus that exists. And, and it's not even a business decision anymore. It's a medical decision. And really, it's out of the business's control, which is really disappointing. Right. And so just for some context, the NHL and the NHL Players Association committed to going to China for the Olympics back in September. But the one caveat from the start was that either party was allowed to withdraw if COVID-19 conditions posed some sort of tangible risk mm-hmm. to either athlete safety or the impracticality in reshuffling the schedule and with the pause in the season already on it seems like that's the the reason that they're presenting that it would be way too hard to go through two breaks and reschedule everything in addition to all the risks to athlete health and politics and local restrictions and all of those other things so look Hey, you also got to remember, like, this is something that the players negotiated for in their CBA return to play agreement where, you know, the, the players wanted to go to the Olympics and they were willing to give certain concessions to the owners in the return to play agreement um, in June of last year where they were like, if we have an opportunity to go to the Olympics, we want to go. And the NHLPA lawyers specifically told the 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 players like this isn't necessarily the best deal and the players said we don't really care we're willing to make these concessions as long as the nhl puts in a reasonable effort to get us to the olympics so this is something that the players really wanted for they negotiated for it in their literal contract with the nhl and you know chris johnson on the cj so he said that you know he doesn't believe that there was any malintent by the nhl they he believed that the nhl 
literally tried their best to get this to go working for them. It just was not going to work out. Now, before we move on, I do want to... I do want to express something since we're on the topic of COVID that mm-hmm. I, as a journalist, have felt and thought for quite some time. Now, I could be wrong on this, but I have always been frustrated by the media's tendency to overly fixate on case numbers when they are providing COVID-19 updates. Because if you read most news articles, what is in the headline? Case numbers and how much that has increased or decreased from the last update. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. In my opinion, that's that's what we in journalism call burying the lead or not putting the most important or relevant information first because, well, the number of COVID cases that we have in society is in itself not that important. What is important is the number of hospitalizations and ICU admissions that those cases are generating because the the overall justification and reasoning for whether it's lockdowns or restrictions or whatever has always been we can't overburden our medical system because if we do, that not only impedes the ability of the medical system to treat more COVID patients, it also impedes their ability to treat everyone else, right? Car accidents are going to happen, surgeries are going to have to take place, violent crimes unfortunately happen, and people unfortunately fall ill to various other diseases as well. But look, when I was reading into the NHL's decision to pull out of the Olympics, I re- read a little bit about the state of Omicron in, in Canada. And once again, I was just struck by the, I would say, the overemphasis on case numbers rather than emphasizing what matters, which is hospitalizations and ICU admissions. I want to qualify this by saying... I do believe it is far too early mm-hmm. for anyone to make any conclusions about whether Omicron will generate any tangible increase or a dangerous increase in hospitalizations. Nobody knows that right now, and it is definitely prudent to err on the side of safety rather than than gamble your luck, essentially, and have an overburdened medical system risk having that. I understand that, but I, I believe... I'm willing to be challenged on this. If if I'm wrong on this, I'm willing to hear it. But I genuinely believe that the media is bearing the lead and doing a lot of people a disservice by creating this overemphasis on case numbers as opposed to hospitalizations. Because if our goal is to reduce case numbers by a drastic amount and ignore how many of those are mild or moderate or severe symptoms... Mm-hmm. Those goalposts will never stop moving, and I don't think we'll ever get back to some semblance of stability, and I don't think that's viable long-term. No, and neither do I. Like, I I really think that, like, the case numbers are kind of an overrated stat. Like, you, like you mentioned. Kind of like passing yards for quarterbacks in football. <laughs> A little bit. But, like, for me, like, kind of what I think is people, like, people will make the argument of going, well, hey, listen, like, if all of these, you know, case numbers are really kind of irrelevant and all that really matters is hospitalizations and we're doing well with hospitalizations right now. Like, why can't the NHL keep playing even though people have COVID? It's kind of like the flu. Like, you don't have to shut the world down just for the flu. Yeah. And what I would say to that is I would agree with you, but not yet. Yeah. You know, kind of like, I agree with you. Hopefully we will get to the point where one day where we won't have to shut down. We won't have to deal. We don't, we won't have to worry about like uh, restrictions in place or, or government interference in, in our lives with COVID-19. But just because, you know, uh, so many people have tested positive and are, um, you know, non-symptomatic or asymptomatic I think that, like, just because that happens means that we can continue to play. I don't think that that's wise. I don't think that that's smart. I think a little bit more caution is needed at this time to, to kind of gauge whether what's going to happen. Like, no, none of, none of us can predict the future, right? And if, Skip Bayless tries. <laughs> he does not do a good well. No. Good job well. Uh, anyways, like, what what I'm worried about is, is, you know, hospitalizations, ICU beds, that kind of stuff. And I think that that's important to take note of and it's important to kind of follow. But, you know, the NFL has a protocol basically saying, like, if you test negative on game day and you're asymptomatic, you can play. And the NHL doesn't have that rule. 
meaning that if you test positive, you're done for, I think, seven or ten days regardless. Um, even if you test negative and you're asymptomatic within those ten days, you still have to be away for the, that time. And, you know, those rules and those restrictions are kind of different, especially because, you know, the NHL has two governments. They have the Canadian and the U.S. government, where the NFL is just American. It kind of depends on, on, you know, what each league wants to do with their own rules and with their own COVID protocols and stuff. But I, I think that we will eventually get to the day where players will be able to, um, you know, not have to go into COVID protocols or be away from their team and go into quarantine because they are, you know, COVID positive, but they're asymptomatic. Eventually we'll get to the point where you only need to go to the hospital and you only need medical care if you're experiencing symptoms. I think we'll get there. But not today. We're not there yet. I, I, I agree with you. I think that's a sensible take. And, and just to be clear, you know, I'm in no way advocating for a devil may care, open the floodgates and let's just see what happens approach. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the thought experiment is worth running that were we to get to a point where no new variants of concern appear in a few years time, I would hope that our governments and our leaders would stop obsessing over mere case numbers because once these variants become known commodities, which the key is they are not known commodities, yes. and it's not wise to play with Omicron because we can't say the extent of the damage that it can do, even to vaccinated people. We just don't know. But if we did know, I would hope that our leaders would have the good sense to, to realize, hey, this is a, a recurring disease much like the flu is. It's more severe than the flu, but between vaccinations and an ever-growing base of medical research, mm -hmm. we can move on with our lives in a healthy way. So I, I would agree with you. I'm not, I think the caution is wise now, mm -hmm. but depending on what happens, I, I do hope that a more balanced take is considered by, by our governments and our organizations going forward. Here's another hot take for you. Mm -hmm. there is a, there's a gentleman named uh, Stan Fisher who writes for the Hockey News who believes that hockey goalies need to ditch the butterfly style of goaltending. Now, for those of you who do not know, the butterfly style of goaltending involves goalies spending a lot of time in a down posture, knees bent, pads out, kind of being low. Um, knees on the ground. Knees on the ground. And essentially what this does is, you know what? No, Tyson, I'm not going to try to define this. You're the former goalie. You can define the butterfly style better than I can. Yeah. First of all, I wonder if Stan Fisher Fischler was actually a goalie because I wonder about that. Anyways, basically the butterfly position is a style of goaltending that is used to maximize the coverage of the net, especially lower to the ice. Basically what the goal is, is that when you're in the butterfly position, you want to go on your knees with the pads kind of flared outward. So that way the pads are facing the puck or facing the player. You then want to have your knees spread as far out as it is possible, essentially, to try and get them as wide as you can. So that way your legs, your feet essentially cover the entire bottom of the net. Then you have your chest and your hands to be able to move and make saves whenever you need to, to try and get the pucks that are a little bit higher up. There's different styles that come out of this, such as the half butterfly, such as um kind of uh, other kind of um you mean yeah. like the often thrown around hybrid style of goaltending? yeah a lot of times like goalies will use kind of a, a mixture of like crouch slash butterfly styles where they you know kind of bleed two styles into one another but also like uh, jonathan quick mark andre fleury made the butterfly uh style really popular Lund henrik Lundqvist especially also, yeah Luongo. especially because these guys they had incredible mobility while being down on the ice on their knees by using um a slide push to get from one side of the ice to the other side of the ice while remaining down on their knees so that way a goalie can go down and then get across without having to go down go back up get across and go down again so there's a lot of different styles and a lot of different techniques that can be used to help cover a lot of the net. And basically kind of the goal of most goaltending is you want to try and initially cover 100% of the net. Obviously, you're not going to be able to 100% of the time. 
but at least for the initial shot, you want to be in a position where you can cover 100% of the net and the butterfly pos position is a really good position to kind of maximize your coverage. And Especially with paired with fundamental angles. Exactly. And, you know, with an aggressive style or a more conservative style, depending on the size of the goaltender or the athleticism, the butterfly style can be adapted, changed, malleed. Uh, molded, rather? Molded, yeah, to fit kind of whatever um, size slash preference slash skill level the goaltender needs. So it's it's a really good style if you want to try and teach young goalies to learn, to grow, and and to learn different styles and to learn different skills, but also to give them early success because the butterfly style can be adapted and changed to whatever the goalie suits best. Now, to give... Thank you for that very detailed explanation, by the way. To give the non-hockey folks out there a bit more context, the opposite of the butterfly style is what we call stand-up. Mm -hmm. This was favored by many goalies in earlier eras of hockey, like the 70s, 80s, and the 90s, where goalies would be standing upright most of the time, relying on raw athleticism and reflexes to stop whatever comes their way. This is your, if you want to imagine your goalies, instead of constantly being down the ice, just kind of flailing, throwing their bodies at pucks, scorpion kick saves and flashing glove hands that that is the opposite way that you can play goaltender in the game of in the game of hockey now with that being said i just want to give a bit of context for what stan fischler says why he is arguing that maybe it's time to get rid of the butterfly which neither you and i find that a terribly convincing argument but here his his take is that there's been a lot of goaltenders that have been injured this year and in the last few years. Most notably, Ben Bishop, a three-time Vesna Trophy finalist as the NHL's best goalie, announced his retirement due to lingering knee issues. And he went out on record and blamed the butterfly style by putting intense torque on it, on his knees that contributed to the end of his career. You've got a lot of others that are out right now, like, like John Gibson, Mike Smith, Braden Holtby, Jordan Binnington, Craig Anderson, Mackenzie Blackwood, and so on. And several of these guys are former Stanley Cup winners, veterans who've been at least to the finals, great goaltenders, although some of them are older than others. And his argument is that, hey, we don't want goalies to be hurt with such regularity. We don't want careers to end prematurely. But I think the problem you and I both have with this article is his insinuation that a return to the stand-up style of goaltending is viable in today's NHL. Stan Fischler writes that Ken Dryden and Johnny Bauer, he mentions that they're Hall of Famers, and yeah, they stop pucks with a really stand-up athletic style, but man... That was that, that was in an age where they didn't have curved sticks. Right, and, and if you are not familiar with hockey, I would encourage you to just YouTube older hockey highlights from the 70s and 80s, and Bauer, even the 90s to some extent, but definitely earlier than that. And Bauer's earlier than then. Like, he's like 40s, 50s. Yeah, and, and so it's even more removed from the modern day, and... And what you will see when you look at these old hockey highlights is you'll see a lot of players scoring with essentially 50, 60 foot slap shots at will from ridiculous ranges because the stand-up style of goaltending is quite flawed and no matter how athletic you are, no matter what your reflexes you are, it's very difficult for human beings to stop pucks going 90 miles an hour or faster than that. And and I, and I found some stats to back up this claim. Uh, HockeyReference.com, if you want to look up league averages in goals per game, this is just a measure of Across all the games in the NHL in any given season, what is the average number of goals scored in that game? And and when you look at anywhere from the 2000s onward, you see that the number is always under three goals a game. For example, this current season right now, we're at 2.76 uh, essentially goals against average. You go back 10 years to, 28, to 2010, the number is 2.61. You go back 10 more years to 2000, the number is 2.65 goals against average. But then if you start getting into the 90s and the 80s where, where these older styles of, of hockey were being played and the stand-up was much more prevalent, 1981, 3.95 goals per game. 
10 more years, 1991, you've got 3.37 goals per game, and you go all the way up to 1993-94, that was the that was about the point where these numbers started going down, 3.14 goals per game, but anything before the 1993-94 season, well over three goals a game were being scored in any, in the NHL as opposed to about two, two and a half, under three mm-hmm. in, in the last 10, actually the last 20 plus years. And so to me, this is a case of the, the numbers backing up the eye test that, yeah, sure, the stand-up goaltending style may save the athlete's knees, but at the same time, this is the highest level of a contact sport. And if goalies were to start going back to a stand-up style, uh, a lot of pucks would go in. Oh, totally. And, like, I don't want to be mean to Ben Bishop, but I, I want to, like, reference this. Ben Bishop is 6'7". You know, he is a freakishly large person. There are not many people in the world that are 6'7". In fact, him and Miko Kostinen were the tallest to ever play goaltender in the right. NHL. And when you think of really tall individuals who are in athletic sports, a lot of them suffer with a lot of injuries. This is not something that is uncommon because, you know, human beings in, in and of themselves, they're not really supposed to be that big and that athletic. But they are, and sometimes the body breaks down because of that. Well, I mean, you look at Yao Ming, seven foot six, three ten center in the NBA. Joel Embiid, seven one, mm-hmm. what two eighty or something like that. And, and players, even you know Zion Williamson, six seven, two eighty five, explosive athleticism. All three of these players have suffered repeated injuries, particularly to their knees and ankles and their lower halves, because as you said, it is difficult for human joints to consistently hold up to that amount of mass exploding that much. Absolutely. And it's it's something that, you know, people don't always want to acknowledge because they never want to say like, oh, it's just because your body is different and everybody's body is different. But that's partly that's partly the case, you know, like as a trend because of the butterfly style, goalies are in fact getting bigger. In the 90s and the 80s, you could find a lot of goalies that were 5'10", 5'11". Nowadays... And even Darren Pang, as you said, 5'5". Five five. Kelly Rudy's, I think, is about 5'8", in yeah, that about, ballpark. About there. But now, like Jack Campbell, he's 6'2", he plays for the Leafs, and he's one of the more smaller-slash-average goalies in the NHL in terms of height and size. Like, compared to a lot of goalies, he's small. Like, Henrik Lundqvist was really big. Wasn't he, like, 6'4", six, 6'5"? Well, actually, Henry Lund- Henrik Lundqvist was only 6'1". Oh, he really? wasn't actually... He was about 6'1", 185, which, by the way, to your point, that is a smaller goalie yeah, that's in a today's smaller NHL. Goalie. Goal. But look, Andre Vasilevsky, the the devastatingly effective goalie that backstops the Tampa Bay Lightning to to two to two cups in a row six foot three about 225 he's a big body mm-hmm. mike smith six foot four ballpark 220 pounds mm-hmm. let's look at the rest of these these goalies are on that list john gibson you know six two i think about mm-hmm. 220 and when you look at other guys in the nhl uh pardon me yeah there's just there's just a lot of really or at least relatively bigger, taller goalies that cannot be compared to the five foot ten Dominic Hasheks or the five foot five Darren Pangs of the past. Yeah, and I just think that, you know, the stand up style like you mentioned, it's not a good way to deal with it. And if I'm gonna be on a hundred percent honest, you will always find people that are willing to sacrifice their knees for the career that Ben Bishop had. You know, Ben Bishop, he was a multiple-time All-Star. He, I believe he won a Vesna. Did he not win a Vesna in Tampa Bay? I'm not sure he did, but he, like I said, he was at the very least, least pardon me, in the running Vesna finalist three times. So even yeah. if he didn't win, he was very close and considered a top-ten goaltender for mm-hmm. three seasons. Using the style that Ben Bishop had would be... It, it's, it's clearly right now what we have is the best style that we have to stop pucks. And there are always going to be people that are willing to sacrifice their knees for a great career in the NHL or even a modest career in the NHL. Um, you know, and I think that as long as like it's the best way to stop pucks and to play goalie, the butterfly position is going to still be used. And I'm I'm with you. I'm with Steve on this. Yeah, probably the Tor- oh, you mean Stan Fisher? Oh, sorry, Stan Fisher. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm with Stan on this. That 
the torque, the like the the weight and the, and the damage that it could do to your knees being a butterfly goaltender, I'm not I'm not convinced that that's not an issue. You know, I'm sure that that's probably definitely something that a lot of goalies go through: knee injuries, lower body injuries, groins, everything that you know that goalies suffer through. A lot of them are non-contact injuries. The goalie's just trying to make a save and then pull something accidentally. Um, but you know what? Like I think that. It, there's going to be a way in the future that maybe there's a different style or a different way of doing goaltending that maybe will help lower some of these injury risks. And I don't think that going back to the stand-up style is the answer, but I do think that, you know, as the game progresses, different techniques are needed for different eras and different times. And, you know, the, the butterfly movement came out of somewhere and the next movement will come out of somewhere from that, you know? And I think that ultimately at the end of the day, I think that, you know, goaltending is in a good spot right now. There's a lot of really good goaltenders in the league and the butterfly position, it's the best way to stop pucks and really is. Well, I think I'm definitely with you there in that it kind of comes with the territory. Like another example is, is pitching in baseball. The reason why starting pitchers in baseball get four to five or even six days of rest between games after throwing anywhere from 50 to, I would say, upper end 110 pitches is that overhand pitching, the way that you see in baseball, is an inherently unnatural motion for the human body such that if pitchers did not rest like that, they would destroy their arms and shoulders in a relatively quick length of time. And even with the rest, you see guys getting Tommy John surgery, guys just tearing their ligaments apart, throwing wild pitches. And it's and if you want to change that, you would have to fundamentally change the game of baseball. And if you were to go to a stand-up style of goaltending, you would fundamentally change the game of hockey. Having said that, I think we're both in agreement that all these injuries are not okay and reasonable efforts must be taken to try to minimize these injuries and, and much to what you said i i sent this article to a friend of mine also his name's david as well and he uh, has played goaltender before he is currently working at a goalie academy mm. in calgary and what he what he told me over instagram is that yeah there's no denying the butterfly's brutal on the body, the number of hip surgeries in goalies is rising dramatically. He, like us, doesn't think that the style is going anywhere. That's just reality. But his take is that better care can be can be made in, in beginning strength and flexibility training at perhaps younger ages for young goalies to build up strength and resilience for the position and mitigate injuries. And I think that that is probably a more sensible answer. Strength and conditioning is widely known as a very important part not just of physical performance but of rehabilitating injuries and and minimizing the injury risk because if you undergo a great strength and conditioning program your joints your muscles and your ligaments will be more resilient than they otherwise would be and i think that i'm sure that there is plenty of research that doctors and kinesiologists can do in the area of how do we minimize injuries in the game of hockey and i hope that that research is done and it yields new findings on hey how can we evolve goaltending how can we evolve the style so as to remain competitive but minimize injuries rather than perhaps going to a straight butterfly but ultimately i would agree with you and i would agree with my friend david that the better approach is mitigation and not kind of a knee-jerk drastic change to something else yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. And, you know, I, I hope that one day, like, there's a lot more, you know, technology, there's a lot more training, and there's a lot more research done on this to make goaltending a safer place. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't see it going anywhere. It's so good of a position right now, especially like, with these guys who have massive upper bodies, they can be 6'6", six, 6'5", six, six, play goaltender, go into the butterfly and cover 95% of the net. It's just, it's so good and it's so good. And it's, you can't coach size is something that I was always taught as a kid. Oh, trust me as a five foot three man. I know that all too well. You cannot coach size. You can't coach size, right? And, and have, being a larger person in the butterfly style definitely helps. 
And, you know, I think that being able to play goaltending at a high level requires you to play to your strengths. And the butterfly position has a lot of strengths and it's, it's a good position. So I don't think that it's a, it's a, we need to reject this. I think that, you know, ultimately being able to find a way to, to create new ways to, you know, evolve the game is good. Um, Having more of a hybrid style, being able to go into a a new, even uh, different teaching methods to talk about like the different technical side of things, whether, you know, how to push off, how to twist can help with those rotations of the knees and the hips. I think that would really help, but you know, more research needs to get done. And, and ultimately, like you said, strength and conditioning is and reflexes and, and athleticism is really key. To make a long story short, we're not pretending to be doctors or kinesiologists or strength and conditioning experts or, or, or anything like that, but I, I thought it was an interesting take that was worth discussing, but I also do think that it was a, a bit too reactionary and that uh, a more viable long-term solution would, would be a more gradual and, and balanced approach that focuses on on mitigation, as you said. But a- anyways, folks, that's all we got for you for now. Uh, by the time this releases is probably going to be right around christmas so we do wish everyone a merry christmas we do wish that everyone will be safe over the holidays and that you get to spend quality time with the loved ones in your life and if christmas is a difficult time for you for any reason we we do hope that you're able to get the support that you need to to get through it and yeah and i guess just just to get through it if nothing else but yeah Hopefully there's people in your life that you can, you know, spend time with because I think that having a close community at, at times around the holidays is really good because, you know, sometimes it can bring up memories of lost one or, or you know, someone who, um, you know, you're not able to go and visit, whether it's because of COVID or travel restrictions or just long distance. But, you know, I, I hope that no matter where you are or what you're doing um, uh, or, or the circumstances that you find yourself in, you're able to enjoy the holidays, have a Merry Christmas and you know have a have a good have a good time off at least (laughs) well with that said we'll be back some other time with something else for you as we always inevitably do but you guys know who we are by now and we're signing off for now from the draft board Thank you for listening to The Draft Board. Podcast music, intro, and outro is produced by Graham Bass. Your hosts, again, are David Song and Tyson Workington. Come back next week for more insight from the rink, the turf, and the court. See you soon.